history turns on a very narrow hinge. And what I mean by that is even the smallest little details, the smallest incident or event can sometimes turn the tide. You think in the terms of a battle or a war. Sometimes they are decided by the very smallest key moment. Or perhaps an election that is carried by just a handful of votes. Or a decisive play in a sporting event or in a game can turn the course of the rest of that game. So one small incident can change the course of history. One moment evil can be winning, and in the blink of an eye, everything can be turned around. Now, we understand as believers that history isn't just left to fate or chance. There is a God who directs history, who causes that hinge to turn, so to speak. So it leads us to a question. If God is in control of history, if God is directing what takes place, then why so often do we find evil triumphing in our world? Why is it that evil and wicked men seem to have all the advantages? And sometimes the righteous, the, the, the good guys, have every disadvantage. Shouldn't it be the other way around? Well, the truth is, perhaps we've not heard the end of the story. So we come to Esther chapter 6. It is a pivot point in the entire book. Chapter 6 is the hinge on which the history turns. Because in the space of this one little chapter, the entire story of Esther is going to turn around. And again, we might wonder as you read through Esther, why is it that Haman triumphs? Why is it that the bad guys are on the march? Why do they have all the advantages? It's, by the way, very similar to the thought that Asaph had in Psalm 73. Asaph wonders, why is it that the wicked prosper? They, they've got it all. And, and Asaph had a pivotal point in that psalm says, Lord, I've kept my ways pure in vain. In other words, why haven't I joined the wicked? They're the ones that have all the good stuff. Well, fortunes change. And, and God turns that hinge of history. And it happens right here in Esther chapter 6. What I want us to see this, this morning is that God is able to, to turn the tables according to his will and at his time. God is able to turn the tables. That's an interesting expression, isn't it? It goes back to uh, board games and card games like uh, bridge and backgammon. That one moment you may be losing, one minute it seems that one player has all the luck, and then suddenly the tables turn. And suddenly the person on the other side of the table now has the advantage. Well, God is able to turn those tables according to his will and at his time. So far in the book of Esther, we've seen the bad guys triumphing. That's Esther 1 through 6. Vashti, the queen, is deposed. She's sent out of the king's court. The king then summons all these beautiful young women throughout Persia to come, and he will choose one to be his queen. Esther is taken up in that vast net. And she's never asked whether she wants to be queen. She's never... um, interviewed or or even uh, volunteers, she's just drawn into this situation. And so the king gets what he wants. He marries Esther. And then in chapter 3, Haman, this terribly evil figure, rises to a place of power. And he composes an edict 
after his offense at the, the hand of Mordecai, he writes an edict that will destroy all the Jews throughout the entire Persian Empire, which, by the way, included Israel itself. And the Jews are powerless to do anything about it. They mourn. They clothe themselves with sackcloth and ashes. And it seems like the bad guys just keep winning. Everything is going in Haman's favor. And then chapter 6 happens. And Haman's plan begins to unfurl. And from chapter 6 onward, everything begins to go badly for Haman. The tables turn in chapter 6. And as we work our way through this chapter, I want us to work our way through the whole chapter this morning. Uh, I want us to observe three principles that we see here in the text. Three principles that work right alongside of the narrative, the story that unfolds. The first principle is this. God's providence is at work in the details. God's providence is at work in the details. Now, providence, as we have said throughout this study, is the theme of the book of Esther. Nowhere in Esther is God mentioned by name. There are no miracles in Esther. But there are lots of coincidences. There are lots of little happenings. Things that just sort of play out in the the natural uh, way of things that seem oddly planned. Maybe it's because God is behind history and he is, his providence is working here in Esther, not just in the big things, but in the details, the small things. And we have a very small thing that begins chapter 6. In fact, look in verse 1 with me. That night the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. So here God is working, not obviously, but subtly. You know, it's small things, the details. We see here God's providence working in a common event. We see here a common event. Uh, Chapter 6 begins, that night the king could not sleep. By the way, we ought to stop there for a second. That night. It was this night, the same night, by the way, that Esther had had her first banquet. And the king goes back to his apartment. He goes back to his room. Uh, Haman, meanwhile, it's the same night that Haman is complaining to his wife and his friends back in the end of chapter 5 and says, you know, I can't stand Mordecai. And his wife and friends say, well, what you need to do is make a 75-foot tall gallows on which to hang Mordecai. And so, presumably... Haman spends that night constructing this gallows, this this spike on which Mordecai will be executed. So that same night, and why is that important? Because God chooses this night. And what happens is a very common event, right? He can't sleep. We've all experienced this. It's nothing terribly unusual. It's not like God rolls into Xerxes' room and, and sends an angel and says, Wake up, Xerxes. Stand up and honor Mordecai, the Jew who sits in your gate. Uh, God doesn't send a hand to write on the wall instructions to the king. Now, he does that in other places in the Bible. But here, it's just a common event. The king can't sleep. He's tossing. He's turning. He, he's tried everything. You know, and he's the king. He's got everything. You know, he's already got his my pillow there. He's fluffed up. He's got his sleep number bed. You know that he's, you know, he's got it all figured out. But he's still tossing and turning back and forth. Can't sleep. And we've all been there, right? We all know this feeling. Uh, and there's no real reason for it. 
I mean, we could try and speculate, couldn't we? You know, well, maybe he just ate too much at the banquet. Maybe, maybe uh, the king is, is awake because he can't stop thinking about what does Esther want? What is it she's after? But ultimately, there's no reason, human reason, that we can see. He's just, he cannot sleep. So he's got to do something. And so he calls in, in verse 6 for the books. The book of the Chronicles. This was the court record. It's kind of like the minutes of a meeting. Uh, just the recording of everything that goes on in the king's court. And so what he calls for is the most boring reading you could possibly imagine. And again, a common event, right? I mean, we've all sat down to read a book. Maybe we had to do it for school. Maybe you had to do it for your job or something. But those books that are just so boring that they will put you to sleep. And that's what this was. You know, it was a scroll, and they have all these details of what's gone on in, in the records. It's very much like the congressional record. Every day in the United States Congress, there's a record kept of all the different goings-on and what happens. And so I pulled it up for you just to give you a sample of this. This is the congressional record for Tuesday, September 15th, 2020. This is what was going on in your United States Congress. There are measures reported, and here's how it begins. <clears throat> Senate Measure 2502, to ban the federal procurement of certain drones and other unmanned aircraft systems with an amendment to the nature of a substitute. Senate uh, Measure 3643, to amend Title 38, United States Code, to authorize certain postgraduate health care employees and health professions trainees of the Department of Veterans Affairs to provide treatment via telemedicine. I could go on, but I don't want you to go to sleep now, okay? But that's the idea. You know, just the driest reading you could possibly find. And hopefully this is going to just knock him out. Now what happens? In this common event, the sleepless night, which seemed like a non-event. You know, why even report this? Hundreds of people have trouble sleeping at night. You know, what's, what's the deal? Well, on this night, it's something important. Don't miss the detail. Because not only is there a common event we see here, there's also a convenient text that's brought up. I say convenient, providential, right? The king says, get the record. And you can imagine the servant there says, uh, excuse me, king, uh, what record would you like? And he says, I'm tired. I don't care. Just get something that you can read to me and put me to sleep. So the servant walks back there, and I imagine there was probably a library filled with these scrolls. I mean, they're keeping them every day for every event for hundreds of years of this kingdom. So there's probably a vast room. So the servant walks in and says, pick one. All right, I'll take this one. Grabs a scroll, walks back. Now, what are the chances that he grabbed that particular scroll that had that particular detail in it? Well, too hard to calculate, right? But not for God. So the, the servant grabs the scroll, he comes back, verse 2, and as he begins to read it to, before the king, it says in verse 2, it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So as he begins to read, and these scrolls would have been quite long, I would imagine, what's the chances that he grabbed that scroll and turned to that page? Well, too, too hard to compute, but not for God. Because as he begins to read, suddenly Mordecai, uh, the king's attention is, is peaked here. He says, well, wait a second, go back and read that again. Mordecai? 
You mean that, that guy that's out in the gate? I mean, I, I only know him by reputation, but he's the one that reported this? Uh, apparently, this had been four, almost five years earlier that that had happened. And so it was obviously near enough that the king remembered that there had been this failed attempt on his life, but it was far enough that he had most likely forgotten about it. And so he's going, oh yeah, I remember that. Mordecai, yeah, he was the guy. What do we do for him? And that's the question he asked, verse 3. Then the king said, what honor or dignity has the king bestowed on Mordecai for this? Now, Persian kings were famous for rewarding their loyal servants. So if you did something for the king, they would go to to the nth degree to make sure you were rewarded for it. Uh, The secular histories contain uh, Persian kings who gave great land grants to people they wanted to honor. They gave uh, ships and horses and gold. And so the king says, what do we do for Mordecai again? And the the scribe looks back and forth. You know, he he looks in the scroll and he says in verse 3, nothing has been done for him. It was overlooked. It was forgotten. It slipped through the cracks. You know, an administrative oversight. Nothing has been done for Mordecai. And now the king feels bad. That's... You know, I should have rewarded Mordecai for this. How could I have missed this? How could I have forgotten this? And the king realizes he needs to make this right. He needs to honor Mordecai. So we see God working in the details, don't we? Uh, Imagine this whole situation from Mordecai's perspective for a second. Mordecai, several years earlier, had saved the king. That's a big deal. I mean, the king owes you his life. And yet... As the days passed, he doesn't even get a thank you card from the king. Nothing. Now, he's heard the stories about how the Persian kings you know, give great gifts to their beneficiaries. Mordecai gets nothing. He feels probably snubbed, overlooked, ignored. Like, I did this for the king, but nobody apparently even noticed or bothered to, to take a second look at it. And so it seems that Mordecai has been overlooked. It seems very unfair, doesn't it? Here, righteous Mordecai, who saved the king, gets nothing. And wicked Haman gets it all. Promoted to the second right-hand position of the king. How is that fair? I'll tell you what. This is how it often goes, doesn't it? Godly, good, honest people go completely unnoticed, unrecognized uncelebrated, while evil people have the big house and the nice car and the boat and all the stuff. How how is that fair? Well, we also notice that God is still on the throne here, though. Even though Mordecai may feel like he's been overlooked, there's a great reversal that's coming. The fortunes of our characters are about to change, and it all centers on the sleepless night. Just because the king couldn't sleep one evening. Everything in the story begins to change. That's the hinge. That's the little event that has the ripple down effect. God is at work in the details. It's not that God just takes a sort of a broad perspective and he sort of directs things. But then he he turns everything else loose to go its course. No, God is a God who directs even the details. Knows the details. And working his providential will. Perhaps you've heard 
Maybe you don't know exactly what it means, but you've heard, I imagine, of the butterfly effect. You ever heard that before? The butterfly effect. It was originally expressed by an American mathematician and meteorologist named Edward Lawrence. And he made the statement, and he, he presented an academic paper, and the title of it was, Does a butterfly flapping its wings in Brazil cause a tornado in Texas? And on the surface, that seems like a ludicrous claim, doesn't it? How in the world, I mean, a butterfly flapping its wings in Brazil causing a tornado in Texas? It's just impossible. But what his idea, and that, the, the title was slightly misleading, but the idea was small, little, tiny variables can have massive implications. And Lawrence discovered this as a meteorologist, and here's how. He was working one day with a, a, one of the old computers whenever, uh, in the 1960s when they were first using them for meteorology. And so he was plugging in some numbers to make a weather forecast, a prediction. And at first he typed in this variable, 0.506127. And he ran it, and it showed the model of what the weather was going to be. He wanted to run it again, and this time he, he punched in 0.506, and he left off the last three digits. He just rounded down by 0 0.001. The model looked completely different. And he couldn't figure out why. He, he kept wondering, what was different between the two? Why does this one look this way and this one look this way? And it was the 0 .0001 difference. And the fact is, it's the details that matter. And in God's world, now, now does a, a butterfly flapping its wings cause a tornado in Texas? Well, I mean, you could argue about that on an academic level, but... Clearly, there's lots of butterflies flapping their wings, and there's no tornadoes that are being directly caused by it. But the point is, if God is alive and God is real, he's at work in the details. Those little .0001 variables make a difference. Like a sleepless night, for instance. The small things. God is at work in the details. But there's another principle I want us to see, and that is the righteous will not be overlooked forever. The righteous will not be overlooked or forgotten forever. Mordecai was. He, was. he was overlooked. He was forgotten. And in his mind, it was, it was past. That was over. And it seemed unfair. It was unfair. But he'd been forgotten. And we can feel the same way. That what we do for the Lord goes unsung, unnoticed, forgotten, not celebrated. And it may even feel a little bit like I'm doing all this for you, God. And what, what recognition is there? Now, some would say that's a selfish attitude, perhaps. But I do think that God does reward. And, and nothing done in the name of Christ goes forgotten. It may feel that way sometimes. But God never overlooks the righteous. Years may pass. It may not even come in this lifetime at all. But the righteous will be rewarded in the due time, at the right time. The king recognized that Mordecai should have been honored. So we look at verse 4. The king said, who is in the court? So we've already, he's, he's read from the record. Mordecai should have been honored. He wasn't. And now the king says, let me get some advice. Who's in the court? Who's here that can talk to me about this? Well, Haman was there. Had just showed up, in fact. 
First thing in the morning, Haman was there, and the idea probably in Haman's mind was, let me get to the king's palace and ask for Mordecai so I can execute him, and let me do it as early as I can. That way, you know, before anything else comes up, before anything else happens, I can be the first one to sort of get it in and get it taken care of. And so Haman shows up. The king says, who's in the court? Uh, by the way, that also indicates to me, this king, I, I tell you what, he never ceases to surprise me in this fact. He does not make decisions. This may be one of the most impotent kings I've ever seen in, in, that, in terms of that. There's hardly a decision he makes in this book where he doesn't consult his advisors. And he can't even think of a way to reward Mordecai without seeking some help. So he calls to have Haman sent in. Um, actually, let's read verse 4. Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest to the king that he hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. The king's servant said to him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. Now do you see the comedy that's getting set up here? Even as I've, I've been studying this passage all week and even as we read it this morning, I smiled because this is just comedy gold. The king is sitting on his throne. He's thinking, how can I honor Mordecai? I want to do something wonderful for him. Meanwhile, out in the court, Haman is saying, I want to kill Mordecai. How can I get it done? So they're both thinking the same thing, but we're going to notice they start talking past each other a little bit, right? Because Haman comes in, verse 6, and the king asks him, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? (laughs) What should I do? I want to honor somebody, Haman. What would be the best way to do it? And what is Haman thinking? Hmm, must be talking about me, right? Because we've already established Haman only thinks of one person, himself. And so naturally, the narcissist that he is, he thinks to himself, who would the king want to honor except me? Of course it's me. So the king is is asking, what should I do for Mordecai? doesn't say it, but he's, that's what he's thinking. And Haman thinks he's talking about him. So this is a classic example of miscommunication. And like I said, that's what makes great comedy, right? You remember the old who's on first routine from Abbott and Costello? If you haven't seen it in a while, you, you, you can go back and watch it. But, uh, you know, it's the who's on first. And there's this dramatic miscommunication that happens. And it's a classic comedy uh, sketch. And that's the idea here, is that they're talking past each other. The king is talking about Mordecai. Haman thinks he's talking about him. And it's this big confusion. But here's the thing. Haman has a big, long list that he wants to, to bring out here. He says, what should I do for the, one, the man the king wants to honor? And Haman says, let me tell you. I've got a great idea. Haman answered, verse 7. The, for the man the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble servants, and he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So he's got it all rehearsed, doesn't he? You notice that? I've always wondered about that. You know, he's just... Caught off guard, right? The king says, hey, let me ask you a quick question. What should I do for the man I want to honor? And it's almost like Haman says, well, since you asked, I have a list right here you know, of all the things, my wish list of everything I would like to have happen to me. 
It, it's almost like he's been daydreaming of this time. Uh, talk about a man who's absolutely full of himself. And so he says, you know, bring him out, dress him up like the king, put him on the horse, ride him around town, letting everybody know this is a man that should be honored. Now, again, from Haman's limited point of view here, he's thinking to himself, this has got to be the best day ever. I get up, I'm going to have Mordecai executed this morning. The king is going to ride me around town, praising me. Tonight I'm going to this banquet with the king and Esther. Could it get any better than this? Well, it could. And it's going to get a lot better. Because this is a dramatic miscalculation on Haman's part. So the king loves the idea, right? Verse 10. The king said to Haman, hurry, take the robe and the horses you have suggested and do so for Mordecai. And at that moment, Haman's jaw hits the floor. He says, what? Who? Not only that, he says, Mordecai the Jew is almost to you know, rub salt in the wound. Uh, this is, Haman's downfall is not just over Mordecai, but his, his entire targeting of the entire Jewish people. God is going to protect his people. So we see here Haman's humiliation, right? Haman is dragged to the, he goes from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows here. It says, do this for Mordecai, the Jew who sits in the king's gate. And then I love this, end of verse 10. Leave nothing undone that you have spoken. Don't leave anything out, Haman. You know, don't go halfway on this. Do it all. And then you kind of wonder, uh, you know, the text doesn't say this, but you kind of wonder if the king afterwards said, now, Haman, was there something you were here for? Like, did you want to say something to me? No, no. So Haman is brought low. So you, you have Haman's humiliation, excuse me, and Mordecai's magnification. So Haman, fine, or excuse me, Mordecai finally gets the recognition that he has long deserved but been uh, withheld. Verse 11, so Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai, and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Or, as Haman said it, this is how God, this is what uh, the king does for the man he delights to honor. You know, through clenched teeth. I tell you, he did not want to say that. I wonder if uh, when Haman suggested this idea, he said, let the king bring out one of the princes to lead the horse. I wonder if his original plan was to have Mordecai humiliated, leading him around. But nevertheless, it's reversed in a moment. God turns the tables. The hinge of history swings the other direction. A moment ago, it was Haman, Haman, Haman winning. And now the righteous have been exalted. No longer overlooked. They are honored. Mordecai, the Jew. God will exalt his people in due time. Now, when Mordecai is finally honored... uh, it would seem that previously he had been totally forgotten. And, and that's the way we sometimes feel. The world is passing us by. As followers of Christ, it may seem like we get the short end of the stick. And we struggle along while the world gets a free ride. Well, here's the hope that we have. God will not forget the righteous forever. That if you're a servant of the Lord, your exaltation, your magnification is yet to come. Not necessarily in this life. In fact, in this life, God has warned us that there's going to be trouble and tribulations and trials, etc. But 
when the Lord Jesus comes back for his people, when, when we are with him in glory, it is said that we will be the ones who rule and reign with him, that we will be highly exalted, that we will be lifted up. Listen to this. Listen to what it says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. And that's the key words. In due time. When God's timing is right, you, believer, will be exalted, magnified. You will be the one the king delights to honor. That's incredible to think. That you and I, as, as humble and as lowly as we are, will be lifted high, honored by the king of all kings. So that the righteous will not be forgotten or overlooked forever. And finally, evil will not go unpunished. Evil will not go unpunished. In a world that seems so unfair, where the righteous get the short end of the stick and the wicked get all the advantages, the scales will be evened. And the righteous will be lifted up and the wicked will be eventually punished in God's good time. Esther chapter 6 is the downfall, or at least the beginning of the downfall of Haman. His time is up. The first half of the book is all about Haman and his rise. Now it's Haman's fall, and he falls hard. In the course of 24 hours, or less than 24 hours, the entire book reverses. And it hinges right here. Look at verse 12. So he spent the entire day. Imagine that. You know, Haman had all kinds of plans for today. And they all changed because he ended up leading Mordecai around, praising him. Verse 12, afterwards, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house. By the way, do you notice the fundamental difference between the two guys? Haman, Haman wanted all the glory and the honor. Mordecai got it. And then at the end of the day, he just went back to his job. He didn't, he didn't uh, revel in the glory, did he? He goes back to the gate. Haman hurries home. And it says here he was mourning with his head covered. So he, he's got this robe pulled over his head. He didn't want anybody to see him. And he's mourning. Where have we seen that word before in Esther? Chapter 4. The Jews were mourning when they heard about Haman's wicked order. Now, again, the tables have turned. Haman is the one that's mourning. And he's going to have a lot more to mourn about here in a little bit. He rushes home. He gets there and he tells his wife Zeresh and his friends, verse 13, everything that had happened to him. And his friends comforted him. No, not really. The wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. So even the family sees that fortunes have changed here. And remember, Persia was a very, uh, a very superstitious society. There was a lot said about fate. And so I think the family probably recognized, hmm, you know, obviously fate is not on your side, Haman. But what's more, they also seem to notice there's something about Mordecai being a Jew. And maybe this is a recognition, you know, sort of a subtle one, but a recognition that the God of Israel protects his people. And that Mordecai, if you're fighting against God, there is no hope. You notice they say in verse uh, 13, if Mordecai before you, whom you begun to fall, that's an interesting phrase, by the way, begun to fall. In other words, it started right now, Haman, but the end of it is assured. 
He has begun to fall. That's the thing about when you begin to fall, there's really no stopping it, is it? I mean, if you stumble, yeah, maybe you can catch yourself. But if you've begun to fall, you're going to hit the ground. And that's what Haman has done. He has begun to fall. And the crash is coming at the end of chapter 7. But it has begun and there's no stopping it. That's the idea. And they say, if, if Mordecai is of Jewish descent. Now, the King James captures the original even better because it says there, if he is of the seed of the Jews. That's the exact expression, the seed of the Jews. <laughs> that brings back a lot of memories, doesn't it? The, the promise that was made to Eve, that your seed will defeat the serpent. The promise made to Abraham, that your seed will be blessed and inherit the earth, and that anyone who blesses them will be blessed, and anyone who curses them will be cursed. It brings to mind the promise made to David, that your seed will sit upon the throne of David. And so when you see seed talking about the Jews, it's, it's referencing back, I think it's kind of at least hinting at this long, glorious relationship, a covenant relationship which God has had with his people. God has brought the Jewish people under his wing. He has made a covenant with them. He has protected them. And so to go against the Jews is a death wish on Haman's part. He will receive the just reward of that. You see, in targeting the Jewish people, not only was Mordecai trying to destroy the people of... uh, Was Haman trying to destroy the people of Mordecai? But in a sense, Haman was targeting the promises that God had made. After all, to destroy the Jewish people would be to destroy the promise of a coming hope, that seed. And just like it says in Genesis 12, those who bless Israel will be blessed. Haman, however, has taken the route of cursing, and he will be cursed. Haman had not just targeted a people, he had sought to destroy God's people and God's promises. But in reality, Haman was the architect of his own destruction. A few weeks ago, I mentioned the book, uh, The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. It's about uh, the Ten Boom family and their, their experiences in Holland during World War II, protecting Jewish people. One story stood out to me, though. At one place, Corey Ten Boom records this story. One day, his father and I were returning from our walk. We found the groat marked cordoned off by a double ring of police and soldiers. A truck was parked in front of the fish mart. Into the back were climbing men, women, and children, all wearing the yellow star. The yellow star marked them as Jews. There was no reason we could see why this particular place or this particular time had been chosen. Father, those poor people, I cried. The police line opened. The truck moved through. We watched till it turned the corner. Those poor people, Father echoed. But to my surprise, I saw he was looking at the soldiers, now forming into ranks and marching away. I pity the poor Germans, Corey, he said. They have touched the apple of God's eye. And see, that's what Mordecai had done. In targeting the Jewish people, he had touched that which was precious to God, his chosen people. And in in essence, what he had done is he had spelled out his own doom. And the day is coming when the wicked will fall. In this age and in all ages, the day is coming. It's assured. Some will live to see it like Haman. You know, he, he gets to watch his whole plan unravel in front of him. 
But some wicked people will seem to have ease and comfort all the days of their life. But in the final judgment, they will be caught up. It's like it says in Psalm 1. The wicked are like chaff, driven away by the wind. They will not stand in the judgment. The wicked will fall. The the day of final judgment is coming. So the question for all of us is, whose side are you on? Will you be those righteous ones who have been exalted? Or will you stand in the judgment with Haman and the rest of wicked humanity who rebelled against God? The only real difference between the two groups is one are are saved by the grace of God through Christ. The others have rejected that grace. It's not that some are sinners and some are, are lived perfect lives. It's only the grace of God. So are you among the righteous who will be exalted or among the wicked who will perish forever? One last thing to note about Haman before we get to a few conclusions here. You notice in his fall, he actually praises, not willingly, but forcefully praises Mordecai. I mean, he has to walk through the streets saying, here's the man whom the king delights to honor. The same, by the way, will be true of the wicked in the last judgment. Every tongue will confess and every mouth will say, Jesus is Lord. Whether they believe that in life or whether they accepted that or not. Even Haman, someday, will declare Christ is Lord. Not willingly, but as a rebel. So again, the question is, do we willingly declare that? Or will we at the final judgment? Here's the point. Right now, things seem very unfair, very unbalanced. The wicked have everything going well, and and the righteous so often are struggling along. And yet, that hinge will turn. We, We don't know exactly when and where, but we know when Christ returns, and when all scores are settled, there will be a great reversal. Those wicked who have prospered will be brought to nothing. And those who had nothing yet served the Lord will be exalted to the highest place. So let me conclude with two thoughts. First, God will turn the tables in his own way. You notice he does it here through his providence. You know, these small little details, these tiny little moments. Uh, One sleepless night seems like it would pass rather unnoticed by history. Yet this sleepless night is the hinge upon which the whole story of Esther turns. So God will turn the tables in his own way. Secondly, he will turn the tables in his own time. God is not in a hurry to do what he does. God always has the same pace. It's mankind that hurries around here and there. And we think, why isn't this happening sooner? You know, God, why aren't you fixing this faster? Or whatever we might think. The, the fact is, we're the ones who are in a hurry, not God. In fact, look at Esther 6 for just a moment. I, w- I want to point this out because I thought it was interesting as I studied. Uh, verse uh, 10. The king said to Haman, hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested. Verse 12. Afterwards, Mordecai went back to the king's house, the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house. Verse 14. We didn't read it, but 
It says, while they were still talking, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman. So you notice the thing about Haman in the story? It's hurry, 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 hurry. He's just running one place to the next. And I think that's a good picture of humanity. We're always in a hurry. Nothing's ever fast enough for us. God takes his time. And it may seem like justice has been withheld for a long time. Even the martyrs in Revelation chapter 5 are crying out from underneath the, the, the altar saying, Lord, is it now time? How long will our blood go unavenged? You see, for us, it seems like, God, you're taking your time here to turn things around. But it's on God's time scale. In his due time, we will be exalted. In due time, the righteous will receive their reward. In due time, the wicked will receive their punishment. Let us have patience to wait for that time. And may we be found on the right side. When the hinge of history turns, may we be those who are exalted with Christ.